Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I was charged with six felony one counts of distribution of crystal meth, manufacturing of crystal meth, conspiracy of crystal meth. Always carry a maximum of life in prison. I literally spent probably a million dollars on drugs, and I'm not exaggerating. I started uh, breaking into houses. I started robbing people. I would go up and just ring the doorbell. And if somebody was home, I would say, oh, I got the wrong house. If nobody was there, well, guess what? I'm going in the back and I'm going through the window. Two Toledo burglary suspects are on the run tonight. They broke into an occupied dwelling home in this apartment complex. If you have any information on these, please contact the Toledo Police Department. And there I was, my face on the news. I've been to the lowest of the low, and I'm here to talk about it. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Devin Price grew up in Toledo, Ohio, in a decent neighborhood, went to a nice school, and had good friends. Devin's father abandoned him and his mother at a very young age, and after that, his mom became addicted to drugs. Fortunately, he was raised by his grandparents, who, for the most part, provided Devin a fairly normal, stable, middle-class upbringing. Devin's grandfather was an alcoholic and his grandmother bipolar, but they still provided a loving home, and therefore he doesn't really blame any of these issues for the direction his life took. Devin started using drugs and alcohol in his teenage years, and by 17 had gotten into harder drugs, both using and dealing. Now at the age of 29, Devin is recently out of jail and here to tell his story. From getting an underage girl pregnant to becoming addicted to drugs, spending time in rehab and jail, making meth, starting an escort service, and finally landing himself a serious prison sentence, Devin is ready to talk. Later in this series, we'll also speak with his mom and follow Devin's journey now that he's out of prison and getting back on his feet. But now, we start from the beginning. Here's your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy. It's interesting because how you described your childhood is that it was pretty perfect, but in reality, you did have to deal with a lot of challenges growing up in that house. I mean, your grandmother was untreated bipolar, your grandfather had alcohol issues. I mean, it must have been, at times, not an easy environment. It was, I guess where I was just so young, you know what I mean? I didn't see, I didn't see all the issues. You know, all I seen, you know what I mean, growing up, you know, was they loved me. They made sure I was taken care of and I was safe. I didn't really realize how bad it was until I got older and was able to actually look back and see, you know, where the issues were, where they lied. So your younger years, you felt loved, you felt protected. How was it going into your teen years? Well, high school, well, I never played sports. Um, I never really, I was a little bit heavier, I guess you could say. I wasn't fat, but I wasn't like, I wasn't like the real cool kid at school. But I had friends. I had my group of friends. Um, I went to school. I got decent grades. You know what I mean? B- A's and B's. And I went to school. And uh, as far as being in, um, being in the home and everything, like, my grandma and grandpa, they they still loved me and took care of me all the way even through high school. My grandfather still took me to school in high school. He would make me breakfast every morning. My grandma still gave me lunch money every morning while I was in high school. Oh, my God. I love it. I love it. So, so and did you love the fact he drove you to school? Like, was it a nice time with your grandfather in the car? It was. Uh, me and my grandfather have a lot of history. And it... uh we had a lot of fun together. Like I said, he was more of a father figure to me because I never had a dad. That was really the only male individual in my life at the time that really cared about me, really made sure that I was okay. So your teen years were pretty good. So at what point did you start to kind of go off track? All right. At 15, I smoked weed for my first time with a friend. And then I got drunk for my first time at 16. And when I tell people that, they say, well, you started late. I said, well, I mean, I started when I started. 
You know what I mean? Uh, I drank for the first time at 16, smoked weed for the first time at 15, but then didn't pick it up again until I was my own, until I was 17. When I turned 17, my group of friends that were in the neighborhood, the kids I grew up with were a couple years older than me. So when I was still in high school, they were adults. They were done, graduated high school and were living in the streets, not in the streets, but living a street kind of life. And that's how I kind of got into the harder drugs, drinking a lot more and stuff like that. How would you describe the street kind of life? What, what does that life look like? Selling drugs, parties all the time, um, staying up late at night, not really having any responsibilities, not worrying about nothing, doing illegal activity. You're around 17 at that time that you start to join them in that street life? Right. Well, here's what happened. When I was 17, I got my girlfriend pregnant. So I dropped out of high school because of the baby. And once I dropped out of high school, I did get my GD. But then I had no real, you know, I had a baby on the way. I had all these emotions going on. So they were like, you know, Devin, come on. You know, they're selling drugs. They got money. Uh, They're living a life that I wanted to live. So that's how it it really, really took off. And had you moved in with your girlfriend at this point? Yeah, I was living with her and her mother and and her stepdad. I was living with them while she was pregnant. And how did they feel about your your recreational? Well, they were kind of, they smoked weed themselves. Um, so they weren't, they knew I smoked weed, but as far as the other stuff, I hit it very well for the first few years. You know, I would go out, I would sneak out. They wouldn't know I had left and I would, I'd stay gone. I'd come back. So they didn't really know. It, it wasn't until later in the later years where they actually had found out that I was really, I was selling drugs and using hard drugs. How much money could you make? Like, tell me about exactly how that worked, that world. Tell me a typical day as a, as a drug dealer. All right. In 2007, my best friend, uh, his name is Nick. He's actually passed away. He overdosed on heroin two years ago, but he was my best friend. We grew up together and he just got well connected with a guy who they were getting pounds of weed from Mexico and he was buying, he was getting 20 pounds of weed at a time. And I would go see him and he would, because of what the, the close bond we had from growing up in high school, he would give me anywhere between three and five pounds of weed at a time on front. And that's how basically I took off from there. It took off from there. What could you make just selling weed? So you weren't in selling any of the harder drugs. It was just weed at this point. At this point, it was just weed. And I could make anywhere between one and $3,000 a day in profit. And how many days a week would you work? It was 24-7, seven days a week. So how much money would you bring home a week? I made about $15,000 in one week. That is unbelievable. You were making like $720,000 a year. When you say it like that, but it never, it never turned out to be like that because you know what I mean? After spending and, and doing everything, but yeah, it was, it was a lot. And this was just from weed. You know, people used to tell me you can't make money just selling weed, but this was just from marijuana at the time. How many years did you do that for? Actually only two years. Okay. So that's a million and a half. So where did the million and a half go? to drugs. I became addicted to pain, painkillers while I was selling marijuana. I was addicted to cocaine. And so, uh, at this was now at this time, my, my daughter had been born and my baby mom, she got addicted to the drugs as well. So I spent, I literally spent probably a million dollars on drugs. And I, and I'm not exaggerating one bit. I'm not proud of it, but I, I, I can say I probably spent about a million dollars on drugs. And what about your girlfriend? Did you still live with her parents? Yes, I did. I lived with her uh, because she was underage. Okay, she was 15. I had turned 18. So her, her, mom, her mom wanted to keep her in the house until she was 18 and wanted to help raise the baby. And I didn't fight it. So I, allowed, I just lived there. Did you help with all the expenses of the house? Uh, not as far as the bills go. Like I tried to, there was a few different times I had approached her mom and, and, and tried to offer her money. And she said, hon, don't worry about it. It wouldn't take my money. So what would you do to thank them, buy them gifts or what would you do? Uh, I just wanted to show that I was going to be a good father to my daughter. Um, that was the main thing they wanted was to make sure that she was going to be in a good relationship and have a good man to support her and her kid. Did you just have the one child with her? Yes, just one. 
but you're still not with her now. No, I'm not. It got bad. After the guy I was getting all the weed from, he ended up getting caught and got locked up. Well, once he got locked up, I didn't want to, I had never even been in trouble really at this point. I had a couple of minor, minor misdemeanor tickets, but nothing real serious. He was going on his way to prison for the weed and I didn't want to go to prison. So I just stopped. I cold turkey stopped selling drugs. I had $15,000 saved in a shoebox in June of 2007 and I just quit. You know, I, in my mind, I thought I had enough money and I, and I didn't have to work and I could take, you know, I was so young and just so, so out there that obviously $15,000 isn't enough to take care of a family for the rest of your life. But at the time, I just thought I had enough money. How long did that 15000 last you? Three months. By the end of the summer, we were flat broke. Okay, so now what do you do? So you're, you're, you're flat broke, but you don't have to pay rent because you're living with her parents. So it's not like you, it's not a fear of being homeless. It's just a matter of how do I take care of day-to-day expenses? Right. Day-to-day expenses, day-to-day drug use. Because at this point, we're we're extremely addicted to pain pills. I'm doing Oxycontin, 80 milligrams, three of them every single day. That's 240 milligrams of Oxycodone daily. And so is she. So not only am I having to afford my habit, I'm having to afford her habit. And that's when it just got out of control. There was no more money. So she became, you know, very, uh, not physically abusive, but she would scream at me and, and talk crazy to me because I didn't have money to get her high. And she was sick. She was dope sick. And I didn't have the money. I didn't have a job. I wasn't hustling anymore. Well, wouldn't her parents have noticed all these changes in her? I believe they did. They're the type of people though, that don't like to they don't like to talk about issues within their family. Uh, they have other issues going on in their family as well that they don't talk about. So her mom is more or less just tries to be this happy stay, not stay at home mom, but happy mom with this dysfunctional family and just doesn't want to talk about the issues. I, she knew she had to have known she's not a stupid lady. She's very smart. I just believe she didn't want to deal with it. She either didn't want to deal with the fact that her daughter was a drug addict. You know, I don't, I really, I really don't know. And so she's desperate for money. And does she ever get a job? Your girlfriend, does she, what does she do to try to get money to get drugs? She doesn't do nothing. She quit high school at 15. She wouldn't work. She didn't want to work. So it was just like, it was like, it was all on me, basically. I was the man and she looked at it, you know, her family, how they, their morals is the man takes care of the woman. The woman stays at home and takes care of the kids and that's it. I had to get out there and get the money and get a job, which I'm not saying that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all, but there was no effort on her part whatsoever. And what are your grandparents doing at this point? Are they aware that you have a drug problem? And I mean, they would see all the signs because their daughter was a drug addict. Right. Yes, they knew. My mom knew. Um, they knew. Actually, at, at this point, my mom had got sober. So let me tell you that. She actually got in the rooms of recovery and was sober four and a half years while all this was going on as far as like at the end of my drug dealing this part at this point and into my heavy drug addiction she was actually sober she had got sober and was she able to help you through all this like did your did your relationship get closer during this or further apart or how are you guys doing at this point we got closer i forgave her you know i had to as far as from my childhood there was no reason i couldn't keep bearing that on my shoulders and you know i know she felt terrible she loved me and she wished she could have been there for me, but she couldn't. The drugs wouldn't allow her to. And I know that. You know what I mean? I know she loved me. And I know she would never, she never would have put me in no harm. She would have never done anything like that. So, yes, yeah, she tried helping me. She took me to meetings with her. But my mind was so far out there that I wasn't trying to hear what they had to say at this time. You know, I was 19 and I just didn't want it. I didn't want it. You have to want it, first of all. And I didn't want it. Why did your mom want to get clean? What do you think was the instigator to her saying enough is enough? I want to be clean. Well, I guess after 20 years of cocaine use and abusive men, uh, she just finally said she had enough and she wanted it. She finally wanted it. And she walked into the rooms of recovery from the streets, had never been locked up and never been to treatment and got sober. Okay, so now you're 19 and you have to find a way to make money to keep up the drug habit. So. What are your options? The only thing I knew was I started uh, breaking into houses, started robbing people, 
you know, at one time I had a really good name in the streets. So people would front me drugs because they knew I had all the money and I, and I was selling them. So I used that street cred ability to get a lot of drugs on front, never paid it. Um, I owe drug dealers thousands of dollars at this time. Um, I actually, I was beat pretty bad. I owed a guy money and he beat me down a couple of guys. It was like three of them. They beat me down pretty bad. How much money did you owe them for them to beat you down? Probably about $5,000. So $5,000. And so they come and beat you up and do they just find you on the streets? Where do they, where do they come to beat you up? They set me up. They made it seem like the money wasn't an issue. And we're like, you know, you pay us when you can pay us and everything was all right. So they picked me up. I thought everything was good. He takes me back to his apartment. We go inside the apartment and there's three guys waiting, waiting there for me. I walk in and I get blindsided. And how long did the beating last for? It felt like forever. Honestly, I, maybe a couple minutes. Uh, they broke my nose, blow all the blood vessels in my eyes. I was covered in blood. It was pretty bad. I was really, I, I'm, honestly, I was lucky to make it out of there because they tried to lock me in the apartment and actually call more guys over there, bigger guys, to, I don't know, finish the job, kill me. I really don't know what was going to happen, but I was able to jump up and run out the door and get away. And where did you run to? Like, did you just go to the hospital? Did you go to, like, where would you go? I ran back home. I ran back to my baby mother's house um, and fell and just fell on her steps. She came out there and see me covered in blood and she took me in the house and cleaned me up. Did you go to the doctors afterwards to get your, your nose adjusted or to make sure that you were okay? No, I never, I never did because I knew if I went to the hospital, uh, the police were going to get involved. And I never, you know what I mean? I'm the type of, I was the type of guy that, you know, you don't do that. You don't get, you don't get police involved in street life. You just don't. Why is it so bad to get police involved? Like, why is that so important to street credibility? I mean, do they just hate the police so much? Do the police make it complicated? Like what, what is it about the police? Well, because people don't want to go to prison. You know, you got guys out here selling drugs and they become snitches. You know, people get killed for that. Like if you get it's like this, if you're going to commit the crime, do the time. If you're going to do wrong and you get caught, then you need to be a man and do whatever's facing you, not bring another man down because of your actions. So the fact that you owed them $5,000 gives them the right to beat you up and you don't take that to the police because you were in the wrong. Is that how you would have seen it? Well, no, it's not that I felt like I deserved it. But at the same time, I did rip these guys off for this big amount of this amount of money. And I kind of looked at it like, all right, well, if I was in their shoes, how would I feel? If I'm out here selling drugs and, and support my family and a man owes me $5,000, what am I going to do? Do I agree with what they did? No, but I still wasn't going to go to the police over it. Did you still have to pay them back the $5,000? Eventually I did. And in that situation, have you had to beat up other people who didn't pay you? I mean, have you been in their, their shoes? I've never actually had, I, I have. Um, there has been guys um, that had owed me money, but a lot of times they, they always paid because they knew what I was capable of. What would they think you're capable of? Well, they knew because I carried a gun. They knew at time they knew I could fight. Uh, they knew I knew a lot of big people. Uh, so there was never, I never got ripped off. I never, I, as far as me, when I was selling, I never had experience. I never got robbed. I never got ripped off because I was good to people. My prices were cheap and they respected me basically. What's your next step? At this point, I'm 21 now. I've deal with all this shit. And it was probably about a couple of weeks after this happened, I decided I needed to get out. I needed to get out of the city. I needed to change. You know, I'm addicted to cocaine. I'm addicted to painkillers. So at this point, I need to get out of the city. I had a cousin that lived in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the time. So I just up and left. I, I had to. I left my baby mom. I left my daughter. Um, I got an airplane and I flew to Philadelphia. When your cousin saw you, was he like in that same lifestyle? So was understanding or was he like, dude, you got to get your shit together? Like what was his? She's a female. Um, okay. And 
she she knew I was on drugs and she knew the situation. She doesn't do drugs. She doesn't drink. She brought me out there and was really going to help me. You know what I mean? And it worked. It, it started to work for a little while. Um, I was out there. I had been out there for about a month. I sobered up. I went through detox out there um, and I got myself together. I was actually going to get a job out there and I was going to stay out there. But then, you know, I had my baby mom, which I loved. And I had my daughter, which I loved dearly. And it brought me back. It brought me back to the city. And was your baby mama, was she still addicted to drugs? How was her life going? She was. She was still doing drugs with her sister. So where would she get the drugs from? Because you're gone. So how does she get the money to get the drugs? Her sister. Her sister actually owns a, a pretty well-known restaurant in the city. And uh, obviously, she has a lot of connects and people she knows. So she started hanging out with her sister and doing pills every day with her sister. Her sister would pay for it because they owned the restaurant. They had money. She owned a plus waitress there. So her sister basically took care of her drug habit while I was gone. Like, how often would you see in, in all your experiences that that people that are addicted to drugs, especially women, have to prostitute themselves. Is that, would you say that's common? It's very common. And actually, I can say one thing about her. She never did that. Because she was lucky she had people around her that took care of her. But if she didn't have her sister. Oh, yeah. If she didn't have her sister, I believe, I do believe she is something she probably would have done. I've seen many women do it. People you would never expect. When you don't have money for drugs and you're sick, you'll pretty much do anything to get to get get that food. If you and I met in an alley and you were trying to rob me and you really wanted the drugs, would you still have compassion if I reasoned with you, or would you just be like, just not even caring? I was just another person, and just you want my money. Like if I meet a, a drug addict tomorrow and they're trying to rob me, is it just pointless to try to reason? It's pointless. There's your your best bet is just to give them the money because they're not anything you're saying. They're not even hearing. Yeah. You're just your mouth is just moving. They're focused on that money to get their drugs, and then and that's the end of it. Unfortunately, that's just how it is. Yeah. it's sad. It sucks, but that's just how it is. Well, I just think that's good for people that might be naive that don't understand that because um, I agree with you 100. percent If somebody comes up and they have drug issues, just give them the money. Don't try to reason because they're. Their brain is not functioning normally. Correct. hundred percent. hundred percent. Okay. So now um, you come back because you miss your baby mama and your, and your daughter and she's still addicted, but you're clean. So how does that work? It didn't work very well. I come back. I thought, you know, I'm only got a month clean. Okay. So I come back thinking, well, I'm going to tell, I'm going to tell her I'm clean. We're going to stop and we're going to do life right. Well, it wasn't even 24 hours. I was back and I was back getting high with her. And this is when it progressed to heroin. It was no longer pain pills because we couldn't find pain pills at the time. A doctor had got busted in the city where everybody got their pills from. So now it was like, okay, I know a guy that can get heroin. Let's try that. So you just get there, you tell her you're clean. You're saying, I, I want to change things. And she's like, here, take a pill and then you're like, well, no, at first she was all for it because that's all she ever wanted was for me to be clean. But it was, she was so far gone. You know, the first night it was like, okay, okay, babe. Yeah. I want to get clean with you. Then the next morning when she's sick, well, guess what? Everything then done change. She said, I, I can't do this. I need something. I can't be sick. I got to take care of our daughter. I can't be sick. So then I said, okay, well, I guess then that's what it is. And how old's your daughter at this point? She was four. Okay. So was she starting to, do you think, notice that sometimes mommy was a little bit different or? She did, but I believe she was so young that I don't think she really seen what was happening. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, my baby mom, she would scream and yell at her. She would never hit her or nothing, nothing physical, but she would, like I said, she would ignore her and she would scream at her. If she was sick, it was, you know I mean? I, I took care of her. And you moved back into her parents' house. Correct. And how were they when you came back? Were they happy to have you back? Yeah, they were happy to see me. They, they could see a, a change in me at the time, even though it was only for one day. But they see me. They were happy to have me back. They welcomed me back in their home. Now you're back, and you're back to being the breadwinner. So then what do you do? Well, I'm there for a month, and it goes back just to how it was before I left. Nothing changed. There was, I didn't have no job. Didn't have no money. My guy, my connection that I was getting stuff from was in prison. 
So it was back to the old ways. What do we do? We're sick every day. What do we do? So then after a month of that, she finally said, I can't be with you anymore. You can't provide for me and my daughter. You can't provide my dope habit. I can't be with you. I'm going to find someone that can. And this was after six years of us being together. Did she have somebody already lined up? Is that why she felt confident saying to you? She did. She met a guy in that month that I was gone and um, was hanging out with him. It was actually one of her sister's uh, friends. So she's hanging out with this guy the whole month I'm gone. I don't even know. You know what I mean? I come back not knowing that, you know, until I, you know, I, I pick up her phone and I see a text message from her. And is this guy a drug dealer? What does he do? No, he's just a normal guy. He had a job, a house, a car, uh, and he had money. And he was going to save her. He was never a drug addict. And I guess that's what she really wanted. She wanted somebody, I guess, like I said, that could take care of her because that's how she was raised, that she didn't have to work. She was going to take care of the kid and she needed a man that was going to have a job and was going to work. Did you meet him? Did he have... You th- did you like him? Did you think he had good intentions? I've met him before. Uh, yeah, he had good intentions. He's a, he's a good guy. I can't say nothing bad about him. You know, I, I, I felt like he took my family from me. I felt like he took my daughter from me. But it's nothing that I, that I didn't cause. You know what I mean? If I would have been right from the start, she would have never left me. She was in love with me. She loved me. She wanted to spend the rest of her life with me. Is she still with him? Yes, they're still together today. They're actually married. She had another baby. She's a stay-at-home mom. She takes care of her kids, and he works. And she got the life she always wanted. And is she clean? I really don't know. She basically blocked me off social media, doesn't want nothing to do with me. Um, I haven't seen my daughter in going on six years. Now that I'm back and I'm straight, I'm actually going to have to to just do it through the courts because there's no other way. There's no reasoning with her. She just sees me as a drug addict. It doesn't matter how many years clean I have. She'll always, she always just sees me as a junkie. And so I actually plan on going to the court system, filing for visitations and start paying child support and do right and see my daughter and be a father like I never had. Do you just have the one child? I actually have a son. His name is Mason. He's five. I met a girl and it was just like a one night stand and she got pregnant and she's all messed up on heroin right now. Um, her aunt has custody of him. So I'm going to work on that too. Um, it's just baby steps right now. You know what I mean? Where I just come home, it's baby steps. But I definitely, my goal is to have both of my kids back. If not custody, just visitation so they can at least know who I am. They deserve to know who I am. I never knew my father. My father died when I was 19. Did you know anything about him? Any background about him? I know he was a drug addict and an alcoholic. Uh, He never had no other kids. So I have no brothers or sisters. I'm an only child. You know, their family, his family portrays like he loved me and wanted to see me, but my mom wouldn't allow him to see me. So, but I don't believe that at all. But that's what they, they tried to tell me that. But he had all kinds of opportunities once I was an adult to see me and never made any attempt. So I know that's all, none of that's true. So, okay. So now your, your baby mama's broken up with you. She's now with this new guy who she's, who she's still with and she's attempting to get her, getting her life back together. And so where does that leave you? Basically hopeless. I'm addicted to heroin. My family has abandoned me, my baby mama, my daughter. Uh, they kicked me out the house. So I'm no longer allowed to stay there. So now, you know, I have nowhere to go. My grandparents at this time are living in a, not a nursing home, but a senior center. So I can't live there. So now I'm on the streets. When you say living on the streets, were you sleeping on the streets or were you couch surfing and staying at people's places? I have slept on the streets. It got that bad. But for the most part, I, there was enough people that I knew where I could couch surf. I couch surfed for years after this. How many years? probably at least three. And you still, your addiction was still going strong. So that's what you lived for. Right. That was it. Every day it was just, how am I going to get high today and get well? And how do you get the money for the heroin? Basically just robbing people, ripping people off, doing a little petty deals. You know what I mean? Uh, 
somebody would call me and need something and I would just charge them five extra bucks on each one so that way I could get mine to get well. Just, just stuff like that. Were you still getting high from the heroin or were you just trying to maintain so you didn't get sick? Uh, both. Um, I was injecting by this time. I started using needles and I was injecting heroin. So a lot of times I didn't have enough money to get high. I would be able to just get enough just to get well, just to get through the day. Yeah, because how expensive would your drug habit be at this point? Two to three hundred dollars a day. Holy shit. Like you can't even make that with minimum wage. No. So, okay. So you're robbing. Are you going into neighborhoods and robbing? Like who are you robbing from? Basically just houses. I hit, I, I hit a lot of houses. Uh, I would steal jewelry and TVs and electronics and uh, anything I could get my hands on. Anything I thought had any kind of value to it, I was coming to get it. Did you do it while people were home or mostly when they were out? They were basically when they were out. Would you go to a lower end neighborhood or a high end? Like, how did you pick the houses you were going to rob? It was crazy. It would just be random. And I would go up and just ring the doorbell and knock or knock on their door. And if somebody was home, I would say, oh, I got the wrong house. If nobody was there, well, guess what? I'm going in the back. and I'm going through the window. I can't tell you countless times I've did that. And did you look like a drug addict? I mean, did you, would you have looked scary to someone that came to the door? I went from, you know what I mean, being fresh with $300 outfits and jewelry to being probably 140 pounds, looking like a skeleton, pale white. So yeah, I looked like a, I looked like a full-blown drug addict. It was only a matter of time before you would get caught. Right. So you want to skip forward to where I did uh, started to get caught and I ended up going on the run and everything? Yeah, let's, yeah, okay. Let's go there next. Okay. In, 2000, in 2014, I'm still strung out bad on heroin. My cousin, she's also using drugs real bad. Well, she knows a heroin dealer that supposedly had $10,000 in his safe because she's seen it when she was buying dope from him and had a bunch of dope in the house. So now I feel like, okay, this is the golden ticket. This is, this is it. I do this and I'm good. I'll have all this money. I'll have all these drugs and I'm good. So we go there. She gets him out the house. She calls him and tells him uh, she needs to buy a bag. And he takes off. We watch him leave. We're sitting in the parking lot. He leaves. And then we go in. Stand Up Speak Up will continue in a moment. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Now, back to the Stand Up Speak Up podcast, the story of Devin Price. Devin had just went inside the home of a drug dealer to rob him. So they have a they have video surveillance in this apartment complex, which I don't know that they have. So they see my face. Well, anyways, we get in the apartment. She breaks the door. We get in the apartment. He's got a safe, a lot of electronics. Um, we got probably a bottle of 100 Percocets. He had like $100 cash, an iPad, computer, a TV, uh, some jewelry. But when we got back to the house, I broke the safe open and the safe was empty. You know, I thought I thought I was going to open that safe and it was going to be filled with hundred dollar bills and, and ounces of heroin. Like she said, it was in there. I either removed it. He didn't really have it. I don't really know. She could have been lying the whole time about it. But yeah, I break the safe open and it's empty. And I'm like, you know what I mean? We didn't make, but you know, pawning off all the electronics. We ate all the pills, pounding off all the electronics. We didn't make but a couple hundred dollars. So now we're we're sitting here with a couple hundred dollars, and it's two days. Two get two days go by. Nothing is said. Nothing happens. Two days later, there's a breaking news story on Fox News. And on this news story, it says two Toledo burglary suspects are on the run tonight. They broke into an occupied dwelling home in this apartment complex. If you have any information on these, please contact the Toledo Police Department. And there I was, my face on the news. I'm watching it and I see my face. What was that like? Were you high at the time you saw your face? Were you like, so did it seem surreal? Like maybe you were having a nightmare? 
I couldn't believe it. I, I couldn't believe it. the guy was on there. He, they actually interviewed him and I'm thinking like, wow, this drug dealer is on the news interviewing about his house getting breaking into. And so now I know I see this and I just, I realize I have to go. I have to get out of the city or I'm going to get locked up. Had you never been locked up before? I had small stints in my early twenties. I did four months one time on a simple possession at the County. And then I did like, 60 days one time, nothing, never serious, no felonies. I never had been to prison. I never got caught drug dealing. So this was the first time I was facing something, you know, really serious. Would you say at this point you felt desperate and, and, and had, and lost hope? Would you say you just thought it was a matter of time before you landed in jail? Yes, it was. So now at this point, I actually have a friend who got sober and moved down to South Florida, 20 minutes north of Miami Beach in West Palm Beach. And I got on the phone with him. He knew my situation. He told me, he said, come on down here. He said, I'm running three recovery houses. If you want to get your life together and get away from the bullshit, come down here. So the next day I went to Detroit Metro and I got on an airplane and I flew to South Florida. So now I'm Toledo's, I'm in, I'm in the Toledo's most wanted. My uh, my face is in the newspaper. They now have figured out who I am. I'm on Facebook. Everybody's looking for me. And I'm in South Florida. And I I move into a recovery house. And I know that I have to do right. Now, you know, I'm, I know I'm facing all this shit back home. But I'm thinking, well, I need to at least try to get my life together while I'm down here. I need to, I'm on the run, but I need to make the most of this while I'm on the run. So I got straight. 100% went straight. Okay, how did you get straight? I mean, what? I mean, I I would feel that if I was in that situation, I would want to forget everything and get as high as possible. <laughs> like, what would you? What would? What caused you to say, "Oh my God, this is the time to get straight"? Because the house he was running was a recovery house, and they drug tested you every week. So it was like this: I'm in South Florida, where there's over a million some people in this city. This is my only my only shot. Now, if I use drugs and, and get kicked out of here, then now I'm in South Florida, homeless with no money and, and no, I don't know nobody. So now I had, so I guess that was enough. That was enough to get, to get right. And, you know, I had a lot of close, him and a couple of close guys that basically babysitted me for the first month, didn't let me out of their sight. And I was able to start getting back right. Is this like your rock bottom scenario? At this, at this time, that is my rock bottom. My rock bottom gets way worse, but at this point, that was my rock bottom. So I'm living in South Florida. I'm on the run in Toledo. I, I'm, okay, so this is about six months into it. Clean and sober the whole time. I'm six months clean. Um, I'm working under the table uh, at, a, at a call center uh, where I know, uh, you know what I mean, nothing can be traced as far as me. So I'm working a job um, and I, I get a girlfriend and I'm sober for six months. What's your job at the call center? Because you didn't have any training, right? You dropped out of school. The only businesses you've run are drug businesses. So how did you even get the job at the call center? He actually knew the guy that owned the company. They actually have been shut down. The federal, uh, federal government shut them down. They were running kind of like an illegal scam telemarketing business where they would call companies and sell them products and then charge them outrageous amounts of money. And I guess I, they said I had a good voice and I was able to convince guys on the phone because, you know, I worked my whole life selling drugs on the phone. So I started selling uh, like industrial light bulbs and just different shit to these companies. But it was just one big scam. One big scam. Did you know it was a scam at the time or were you just like, not really sure? I, I knew it was funny in a way. You know, the guy that owned the company, he had his own private jet. Uh, he was driving a Rolls Royce. Oh um, my God. You're like, I, I could just imagine the type, like a complete scam artist. Yeah. You know, nice, nice, expensive Rolex. And when he interviewed me, you know, we had a script and I read the script to him and he said, you know, Devin, you have a really good voice and I believe you would uh, do real well at, the, at my company and I want you to work for me. Okay. So you're flattered. You're thinking, okay, this is great. Things are starting to come together. I got a job. I got a girlfriend. Where did you meet your girlfriend? She actually just lived in the neighborhood where I was at 
And it just ran. I kept running into her at the store and I finally just, you know, said, hey, got her phone number and everything. And that's basically how how that started. Okay, so life's going pretty good. Then what happens? All right. After about I'm seven months, I'm seven months clean. I'm making anywhere between fifteen hundred and twenty five hundred dollars a week on my paychecks, which is almost as much as I was making selling drugs. But now I'm doing it legally. Yeah. Okay. so that's a lot of money. Right. So I'm looking at life like this. I know at some point I'm going to get caught. So I'm living life to the fullest. I'm going to high rise hotels. I'm going to, I went to the Miami heat Eastern conference finals playoff game and bought floor seats. Uh, I was, I was eating at five-star restaurants. I was going, uh, taking trips on the beach. I mean, I was living a exotic life in Florida. And were you healthy? Would you say like, what did you look healthy? Were you, I looked healthy. I looked good. Uh, hadn't touched a drug or a drink in over seven months. Uh, I was working out. I had a real good tan going on. I was, you know, I thought I was, I thought I was it. I thought I was the man again. So after seven months, the feds came in and raided the call center where we were working at and they shut us down. Did anybody have an idea the feds were coming? Well, the business blew up so much. It was only a matter of time before the feds got wind of what we were doing. You know what I mean? Uh, they tried to, they kept it under the radar for years. Uh, over 10 years, they kept it. it was, this business had been running for over 10 years and they kept it under the radar, but it, it, it blew up so much that it fin- the feds finally got wind of it and they came in. Uh, it was crazy. We're sitting at our desks and 20 federal marshals come in with badges around their neck and saying, screaming, everybody's got to go. Everybody's got to go. And, and they shut it down and that started basically my downfall. And the owner of this company, did he take off before this? Did he go to the courts? Like what happened to him? Uh, he, he took off. He no longer lives in the country. They don't know. They don't know nothing. He never went to, he never, he was supposed to, he was indicted to go to federal court and he's, he just, he's gone. Okay. So he's gone. You're left on your own now thinking, oh, I finally had my life together. And now I realize I was working for a con artist basically. And you know, the whole time I'm not saving money because I'm making two grand a week. You know what I mean? And I'm spending it as fast as I'm making it. I'm spending it. Cause I was living a lavish lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. Did you get a place? Like, where were you living? Still living at the recovery house. Um, it was $780 a month for rent there. But once I lost the job, it just like, it just, uh, I couldn't afford the bills. I couldn't afford it. So my girlfriend allowed me to come move in with her. So I left the recovery house. I stopped going to meetings. I left my support and I went to live with this girl. And did she have a good job? What was her situation? She did. She was actually a director of operations for a home inspection company. And she was making really good money. Um, she was living with her mom. Her mom was a general manager of like four stores down in Florida. So they had this big five bedroom house with an in-ground pool and a jacuzzi and they had like a bar outside and they had a really nice, they had a really nice house. And did the mom like you? Uh, at first she did. She knew I was a drug addict and was in recovery and she was kind of sketchy about that. And she kept telling her daughter that, you know, he's real early in recovery and I don't think it's a good idea for you to be with him in case he relapses. But, you know, she wasn't trying to hear none of that. So she was a little uh, worried at the time. Which turns out she was right. Would you say you were really in love with her or was it more of a convenience? It, I was in love with her. I was in love with this girl. She was on my speed, real good personality, real pretty, long blonde hair, blue eyes. I mean, she, she had it going on. So yeah, it was something somebody I really wanted to, I really wanted to be with. She had three kids. I were living there too with her and uh, the kids loved me and everything. I played with the kids and everything. And Where was the father? Uh, the father had OD'd um, when they were young. So she, there was no dad in the kid's life. And she was never into drugs, the girlfriend. She'd never done. Never. Never had done it. But she had married a guy that was also a drug addict and had three kids with him. Correct. So do you think that she wanted to save you? you know, kind of like what she tried to do for her husband. I do. She actually, it's crazy because she actually said that, that she was going to save me. Do you know where she is now or what she's doing? She's in federal prison serving an eight year sentence for drug conspiracy. I'm going to get to that part. We, I haven't made it that far yet. Oh, wow. Okay. We got good stuff coming. Okay. (laughs) Keep going. Okay. So 
she's working. I lost my job. Um, I just guess, I guess you could say I got dormant. I got bored. Uh, I didn't really have money, but I'm sober. She's working and making good money. So I'm really not having to work. I'm there with the kids and, and helping out with the kids. And, you know, I, I don't know what caused it. I don't know how it happened. I don't know what, I, I can't really tell you what was going through my mind when I did it. But after seven months clean, I was sitting in her driveway in her Jeep and it just popped in my head that I wanted to get high and I wanted to use heroin just like that. Wait, nothing bad had happened that day? Like, did something, did something trigger that? We went to church in the morning. I mean, I'll never forget the day because it's what caused, you know, everything where I'm at now. We went to church in the morning with the kids. This was on a Sunday. Everything was good. There was, there was nothing going on that w- would even give me an excuse or a reason to do it. And that's why it's so crazy how crazy the uh, drug addiction is because I was good. I was as good as I had ever been, and I decided to use. I'm hiding it at first from my girlfriend. She finally catches me, and she's like, well, you know what? If I can't beat him, join him. And she wanted to try it. And were you just like, no, don't? Like, or were you like, yeah, I want somebody to party with? At first I was, but then, you know, my sick thinking, my drug addict mind said, well, hey, I want to, I can have this girl. She wants to get high with me. I can have somebody to get high with. Now I don't have to do it by myself. You know, misery loves company. And, you know, I, I hold that dear on my heart because I let her do that. And because I made that decision, she's at where she's at now. She was a good girl. Okay. So then that started the downward spiral and what happened next? It progressed. It progressed over the next few months. Um, we're snorting, we're snorting, uh, and then on my birthday, which was in October, this is about, we're, we're about five months into using and we're just snorting a little bit here. And really, she's still working and we're not, we haven't crashed yet. You know what I mean? Everything we're still, we're getting high, but we're still, we're managed, we're maintaining. Well, the next thing she tells me, I tell her about my past. She wants to try the needle. She said it, it intrigued her. It made her, I don't know what she said, but she wanted to try a needle. So, and that's what we did. And did you know, like, did something flash in front of your eyes, like she could never return from this? Or were you just like, awesome, we're, we're, we're like so in love and we're so into each other that we want to share every experience. And I want her to experience the euphoria of, of needle use. That's basically it. You know, I, she wanted to do everything I did. You know what I mean? She wanted to experience everything that I've experienced because we were that close. If I could go back in time, I would, you know what I mean? It kills me to know that I did that to her and put that in her arm. And knowing what it does, I allowed her to do it. And, you know, I'll never, I don't know if I can ever forgive myself for that. But by then, it's the drugs that are talking. It's not you, right? Right. So at this point, she lost her job. Her boss kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, he could tell she was getting high. And he drug tested her and he fired her. So now we're sitting here down in South Florida, broke, no money. You know, uh, the lifestyle down there is very expensive. You know, she had, I think it was like $3,000 a month for a house payment. And, and we just couldn't afford it, you know, and her mom couldn't afford it by herself. So at this point, we have one out. Her grandparents live in a small country town in Marion, Virginia. And she says, Devin, we're going to pack up everything and go to Marion, Virginia, where the population is like 50. So that's what we do. To live with her grandparents. Right. Okay, so you have something with people's parents, right? You're successful living with other people's parents. <laughs> so you're yeah, like, basically. You're like, okay, awesome. Like, let's go see Granny and Gramps and live in a town of 50, which is basically living in a place that's got no population. I mean, it's just a big... basically. Yeah. Right. It's very secluded. Right. So on November 4th, 2014, we packed up everything we owned. We packed up the kids and we left South Florida to head to Virginia. Now we bought a little bit of dope so we wouldn't be sick. But of course, you know, we used it before I think we even got out of Florida. Used it all. It was, we were supposed to have had enough to wean ourselves off when we got to Virginia. But, you know, the drug addict mentality, we used all the dope before we even made it out of the uh, Florida line. So 
So now, you know, we're not thinking that. So we, we reached, you know, it, it was 80 degrees that day we left in November and we got to Marion, Virginia, um, where it was like 30 degrees and it was just like a culture shock. So now we're in this country town. We have no dope. So now it's time to detox at granny's house in the mountains, which was horrible. I laid in the bed for a week. My girlfriend just told her grandparents that I had caught the flu. Uh, she had to maintain. She was sick, but she pushed through it and had to still get up and take care of the kids and act like everything was okay. She was strong enough that I wasn't. All the kids moved with you to this town in the middle of nowhere. So now, like, so a family of five has now moved in to a town of 50. So now the population's 55. Right. <laughs> okay. Basically. So we're there for a month. And we decide, like, this is how Virginia is. Like, there's just like, there's like a hundred towns, like in the area. Like, I want to say like 10 towns is equivalent to like the city of where I'm at now. You see what I'm saying? Like, they're different names in different towns. Well, my girlfriend stays, uh, we stay sober. Uh, we're there for a month and she gets a job. She finds herself a job in a town called Abingdon, Virginia which is about 20 miles south of her granny's house. So she gets a job actually working for the government doing uh, income taxes and, and, and doing federal taxes and stuff. Cause she, you know, she had a good uh, resume and a good work history. So she was able to get her a good job pretty quick. So she gets this job. And then with a little bit of help from her grandparents, we get a three bedroom apartment in Abingdon. Okay. And how big, how big is this town? This town is a little bit bigger, uh, maybe a thousand people. Okay. So we're living there. She's working. We don't know nobody. You know what I mean? There's nothing to do. So we're just bored. We're there for see, November. December was good. Uh, the beginning of January was good. Now, you, mind you, this whole time, I'm still a wanted fugitive in Toledo. I'm still you posted on the newspapers. Um, the U.S. Marshals are looking for me. They just can't find me. You know what I mean? So we're, at, we're in Abingdon. She's working. Everything's good. About, I want to say the beginning of January of 2015, uh, one of the girls she worked with liked to party. So Lainey said, hey, Devin, you want to have this girl come over? She knows people. She can introduce us to people and we can start hanging out. So that is what started the, the crystal meth experience. Because all those hit guys, hit people in them towns, that's all they do is meth, crystal meth. And who runs all the crystal meth? Is it the, the biker gangs? Who's behind all the crystal meth distribution and, and uh, making it? A lot of the Mexicans get it, are getting it from Mexico and they're, and they're bringing it in. But a lot of people are just cooking it yeah. because you're in such a rural area. Uh, there's no police. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, this town is a little bit bigger, but... They're basically just cooking it. So I get linked up with a guy who's been cooking mess for over five years. You know, I, I had never done mess before. So I'm, I did it for my first time. I liked it. You know, I had that gave me a lot of energy and I felt really good. So hanging out with him and watching him over a small period of time, I learned how to make it myself. But it's dangerous to, to, to cook meth, right? I mean, you can blow up a place. It's, it's not an easy like you have to kind of do it in more of a remote place, right? So you couldn't have the three kids hanging out while you're cooking math, could you? Right. He actually had a barn in like the outskirts of town that his uh, grandfather owned. And we used to go out to this barn and he had like a workbench and he had it all set up. He had the, all the, the bottles, the, the tubes, all the, everything you would possibly need to make crystal meth. And I followed him and he, I watched him and helped him and then I learned how to do it myself. It costs you $40 to start. You go out and buy everything you need and then you're set up and then you don't have to buy the stuff anymore. All you have to buy is the Sudafed. You have to buy a box of Sudafed from the pharmacy. Okay. So then who would you sell this meth to? We were selling it to just kids in the area. You know, uh, people that were my age, they all wanted to do meth, but a lot of them didn't have the finances or the resources or the transportation that I had. You know what I mean? My girlfriend's working, has a good job, so I have money. And I have a car and uh, I'm smart enough. You know what I mean? I know how to, I've been selling drugs my whole life. So I know how to build an organization properly and do things right in that sense. 
Okay, so now is it is it starting to take off this business? Is the money pouring in? Basically, um, we're selling we're selling meth. There's girls that that they're escorting. I started an escort service down there. There was about four girls that uh, worked and uh, would be escorts, and they would make money doing that, and they would sell the meth to them. How would you recruit these girls? They were actually girls from my apartment complex that seen how I moved and seen the lifestyle I was living and were intrigued and wanted money. They wanted to make money. So I presented them with a way to make money and they were, they were all for it. And would you get a commission of what they would make being um, sex workers or, or just the money off the meth that they sold? I was using my phone to run four girls and I would set everything up, dates, location, things like that. And I would get, I would take 50%, but they didn't have to pay for drugs because we, the, we were giving them free dope, uh, to get high on. So the money they were making was going in their pocket to do whatever they wanted with. And how old would these girls have been? 19 and 20. And what, what, what would their upbringings like? Like what would make them want to do this? They all had good upbringings. It was just more or less they had just started partying and they got into the drug world and got, you know, addicted to meth. That's all they were using, you know, was meth. And uh, it was just, it was everywhere. You know what I mean? What kind of guys would book a session with the girls? There was a lot of older guys. Uh, I met, I, I had doctors, I had lawyers, uh, I had businessmen, I had normal guys, I had younger guys. There was a lot of men that, you know, because here's the thing, Backpage, I don't know if you've ever heard of Backpage.com. It's an escort website where you post ads. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So in the area, you know, I brought this, I brought my city life mentality down to this rural area and there was no escort service or Backpage in that area. I, I started that. And did anybody tune into this, like the local sheriff or did anybody kind of start to see that you were bringing trouble? Not at first, not until I got pulled over. So I'm going to tell you, on April 14, 2015, I was pulled over um, by the sheriff, and I had 225 grams of meth in the car. So what would that be worth, street value? Well, anywhere between five and 10 grand. So, and then, I mean, that's it. I was charged with six felony one counts of distribution of crystal meth, manufacturing of crystal meth, conspiracy of crystal meth, and possession of precursors with intent to distribute crystal meth, always carry a maximum of life in prison. Next time on Stand Up, Speak Up. You were considering death by suicide at this point. You were thinking that in your head, like the only way out is to kill myself. So at this point, all the rock bottoms, all the bad stuff I've told you, this was by far it for my rock bottom. This was it. This was it. This was the end. I'll never get out of prison. We continue with Devin Price's life story. Hear about his time in prison, the battle with drug addiction, and find out what happens when his warrant from the Toledo robbery catches up with him. I'm already serving a 3 to 35 in Virginia, and now I'm facing eight years in Toledo. And the last day of court, the victim, the guy whose house it was, who went on the news and, and said everything, And now that Devin is out of jail, we'll hear how his life has been and speak to his mom as well. For show notes and resources from this episode, check out StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. Now, Carla joins us for the show wrap-up. I guess what I really like about Devin, which makes him unique, is he kind of tells you the truth. Like He doesn't really try to pretend that anything he's ever done is anything but immoral in a lot of cases. I mean, he's very honest about that. He's like, you know what, he feels bad for a lot of the bad decisions he made. And he never plays the role of victim, where I think he could in some cases, like I think sometimes he could be like, you know, maybe I didn't have such a stable upbringing, but he kind of, he never really puts the blame on anyone else but himself. Like he really tends to not blame the decisions that he made or the course of actions he took or what he did ever really on anyone else but himself which is probably why he's able to be rehabilitated because I think he, he has quite a bit of self-awareness. I think before I had talked to Devin, I mean, I had spoken with drug dealers 
but I hadn't really spoken to traffickers. I mean, he really ran an escort business, which is, he was a pimp. And, and I, I probably had some pretty, I don't know, negative views, I guess, of that. I just, I'd never really wanted to know what it was like from the other, like the pimp's perspective. I think that is like the worst crime that anyone can do is traffic anybody, women, children, men, whether it's slave labor, anything. So I think he kind of opened my eyes to maybe a little bit more compassion and empathy and realizing that probably everybody's a victim in this scenario of trafficking, even the traffickers. That's an interesting point you bring up because actually when I was listening to that part, uh, it didn't really cross my mind even that this would be considered human trafficking. And, you know, this is one of the problems that goes on. Like, of course, there are much more serious situations, but the way he described it was he, he didn't force anyone to do it. They kind of came to him and it just it just sort of happened, you know. So it, it didn't even sound like one of the extreme cases where people are being forced into it. They wanted to do it. But obviously, like you said, it is it is human trafficking. It's a serious thing. Yeah, it's human trafficking and, and nobody wants to sell their body. So they were in a situation they felt that was their only choice. And he probably made it easier for them. And I think there's a lot of damaged people. And once they all come together, they just continue to self-harm, you know, running an escort business and the girls being involved in that and, and everybody kind of treating it like a family at the end of the day. It's, it's self-sabotaging. Right. Maybe they, at the, in that mindset, were okay with doing it, but nobody wants to do that, you know, on a larger scale. So there's something going on with them already at that point. And he's in a desperate town and, and there's probably not a lot of options, you know, but I, I really like Devin. I mean, that's the truth. I enjoy talking to him. I think he's smart. I think he's resourceful. I think he's ambitious. I think he's really good at sales and customer service. And I mean, he's a, a type of employee that, that I would hire. If you, if you remove all the illegal stuff he did, but he still had to you know, have quite a bit of intelligence. I mean, he got caught, so, you know, but I think in those situations, you only get caught. I mean, they're addicts, right? I mean, addicts get caught, but I like him. You do raise up a few good points that I like to touch on. First of all, he's only 29. So like you said, all these great aspects about him, he's got this life ahead of him now that he's out of prison and yeah. he's cleaned himself up. And when he's and just a kid. Yeah, yeah, so he can go put that all to better use. But yeah, what was really interesting is, like you said, just because he was a drug addict and maybe involved with illegal things, you st it still took brains. Like whether you're yeah. making meth or running this business or what, you know, whatever the case. Yeah, this was all skills. If it had just been directed in the right way. He could have been putting all that to use, you know, in something more legitimate. Like you said, the the sales job where he was doing a good job, but it happened to be for a shady company that was, you know, not doing things morally. So now that he's got his, his self together, he's only 29, he can take all those skills that he had and actually put them toward something positive, which he should have done all along. Yeah, I mean, I think he's an interesting millennial. You know, he's not a typical millennial. I guess he's typical in the ways that he wants instant gratification and he wants instant success. So maybe he is very typical millennial, but I would say he's, he's willing to live and breathe a business. You know, I mean, like, as he says, when you're a drug dealer, there's no time to sleep. Whenever anybody needs the drug, you're awake. So the customer service aspect of drug dealing is extremely intense and required for repeat business. I mean, that's how you make your money is all repeat business. So you have to do a good job to begin with. What would you say for, for Devin in particular or anyone like this, what kind of motivated him to share his story? Why is he doing that? Is it to help others? I think there's a few things. I think that, that Devin wants to somehow make sure that all of the stuff he's been through isn't for nothing. And that maybe he can use that to teach others, maybe not go down the same road. He met a lot of really interesting people when he was in prison that were in their lifers that really um, spent time with them to talk about how they would have changed and done things differently. And I think he took a lot of that to heart. I think at the end of the day, Devin wants a father figure. And in jail, prison, you know, I know what we call it different. I think he got some fatherly advice. And I think he did 
I think a lot of people are like, don't go back out into that. You have a chance to like rebuild a real life. And I think he also wants to just be clean about everything he's done. And I think that this podcast series is a way of apologizing to all those people that he's hurt. I think it's a step in that AA of like, now I need to take responsibility. Yeah. So it sounds like we've got a a very interesting series ahead of us with probably a lot of meaning behind it because, you know, what we've covered so far with Devin, that's, it's all interesting. You know, the shock value of hearing someone talk about the kind of things that he's done, you can't turn it off, but there is going to be some actual quite significant conversation to come as we hear more about his life and what, you know, his journey through prison was and what he's doing now. Uh, can you give us a little bit of insight into what his life stage is now? We do know that he's, he's out of prison. He's out of prison. He's been out of prison now for five weeks. He uh, is starting to rebuild his life. He has been um, very responsible. He's had to make some tough decisions in the last five weeks. He's had to um, redefine relationships and friendships. And, you know, he's been put to the test a few times. In the five weeks, it's hard. It's very hard to leave prison and go back and try to rebuild a life. He was making 45 cents in prison. And, and the reality is now he's going to be making minimum wage, which is really, which is really hard for someone that was making $2,000, $5,000, $10,000 a week sometimes. As the series continues, we will hear from Devin regarding his current life situation after prison. And next time, we pick up right where we left off today. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Produced and hosted by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Co-production, editing, and narration by Joel at East Coast Radio Creative. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.